to get underway with a fabulous panel. This is, this is my favorite panel. This is the one that bridges the gap that we tried to, tried to bridge in 2010 with the whole concept of Invest Atlantic, bringing together startups with investors. So I've been uh, uh, chuckling away this morning with the, uh, the panel that's going to be coming up momentarily and listening to some of the stories and, and I think you're going to I think you're really going to enjoy the uh, the opportunity. So on that note, I would like to invite uh, Martin Yule from the BioAlliance and Emergence to uh, come up and uh, do a quick intro and welcome you officially to the morning. Martin, take over. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Bob. Ladies and gentlemen, good morning. Great to see so many of you out so early for what is, I know, going to be a fabulous first panel. So for those of you who I haven't yet met, my name is Martin Yule. I'm Director of Incubation Services at the Prince Edward Island BioAlliance, and I'm Director of Emergence, Canada's bioscience business incubator. The BioAlliance itself is a, is a private sector-led cluster development organization uh, that really focuses on supporting companies that are involved in the research, the development, and the commercialization of bioactive, this is a long sentence, of bioactive and natural product-based chemistry, uh, natural product chemistry-based human, animal, and fish health and nutrition products. Now, Emergence, Emergence in turn, ladies and gentlemen, supports the startup and growth of innovative bioscience and food sector companies by providing customized uh, programming that helps them grow from idea to startup to sustainable growth. That, in other words, supports their commercialization journeys. Now, as a virtual incubator, Emergence supports our clients wherever they are located, and I'm pleased to say that the, at the moment we boast clients from Vancouver to St. John's, so right across, right across Canada. Now, clearly, one key element of supporting company growth is helping them to get investor ready and then attract both public and private sector funding and investment. And as I'm sure we all know, angel investors play an, importantly, an, an increasingly important role. They represent an increasingly important asset class in the funding continuum, filling an important gap between love money, friends and family, and later institutional money, uh, private equity or venture capital. Which is why Emergence and the Prince Edward BioAlliance are so pleased to support this year's Invest Atlantic and are happy to present this session titled Meet the Angels. So without any further ado, Claudia, it's over to you. This morning's conversation is Meet the Angels. I'm going to turn it over to the angels for each of them to introduce themselves and briefly uh, what their background is, what they do. So I'll let you kick it off, Jerry. Hi, I'm Jerry Pond. I'm a senior partner, meaning I have an IT company myself. I run a company, believe it or not. Um, and it's hard to do every day. But I also invest. I'm an angel investor with some colleagues. We have a network called East Valley. Call East Valley Ventures. We operate out of St. John, New Brunswick. We have 25 investments in the Maritimes. I would invest in Atlantic Canada, meaning I would invest in Newfoundland Labrador if I could find it. 
I am uh, David Brennan, a proud uh, Charlottetown native uh, and UPEI graduate. Uh, for the last uh, 20 years, I've been uh, working in the high-growth, high-tech industry. I was trying to count out, I probably have done well over 300 uh, investor pitches uh, over the last 20 years. So I understand the word no very well, um, but I've also had the pleasure of having some success, so I do angel investing now as well as my role as CFO of Ecobee. Hi, good morning, everyone. My name is Suraj Gupta. I am the Chief Investment Officer for the Gupta Group. Uh, we're Canada's largest private hotel developer and also the President and CEO for Rogue Insight Capital, which is our corporate venture capital arm. Uh, we are an early stage tech fund. Uh, we do everything from seed, Series A, and Series B, and we're pretty agnostic to industry. We've done AI, clean tech, fintech, uh, real estate, metals and mining. We've, we've kind of done the full gambit, um, and we try to be strategic investors, so we invest where we can see kind of adding value to our founders uh, through our network. Good morning. My name is Mary Long Irwin. I'm the executive director of Northern Ontario Angels. It's um, a part in Northern Ontario that covers a fair amount of property, including a lot of First Nation communities. We have done about 230 deals, totaling about a $100 million worth of private investment. And we range, again, the full range of deals, although 60% of our deals are technology and the other 40% are just a mixed bag of all types of deals. Good morning, uh, Alex Macbeth. Uh, with uh, Investment Director with Island Capital Partners. Uh, we've been operating for the past year or so. Uh, we are tracking probably close to 50 uh, startups on PEI. We've had uh, pitches uh, from about 25 or so. Uh, we've made six investments uh, so far. Hi, uh, Randy Thompson. I uh, run uh, Valhalla Angels, and we're uh, right now a BC and Alberta focus group, although we have had chapters across to Manitoba. Uh, so we represent about 190 angels, or sorry, 100 angels. We've done 190 deals, about 60 million in capital. Um, myself, I've done uh, 60 deals. Uh, so I'm a, we're deal junkies. We just love everything. So that's that's uh, we're pretty much agnostic. Um, done seven deals here in the Maritimes because I don't think we've done a Newfoundland deal yet either. Um, also, we uh, didn't say this yesterday, but. We're opening an office here in the region for our venture debt fund, um, Old Kent Road Financial, where we lend money against your shred credits or your grants or your digital media credits. We've uh, invested in about 80 companies with a, it's a $25 million fund, and, uh, and all of you have returned the money, so our angels are liking the debt side really a lot. This morning's conversation is going to be interact interactive, so feel free to chime in if you have any contributions to make. Put your hand up if you have any questions. It, it really will be uh, fluid in that sense. Um, I'm Claudia Rojas, Managing Director at Hurt Capital based in uh, Toronto, and I will be leading this conversation, but we're hoping for uh, some fun and entertainment. And with that, um, I'll, I'll turn it over to you, panel, in the sense that, you know, for the startups in the room, how do you go about thinking about angel investors? What are their motivations? How do you build their relationship? Um, what's, the, what's that first step, that starting point to uh, moving towards angel investment? Maybe I'll let you kick it off, Randy. Oh, shoot. I saw him looking at me. <laughs> I said I wouldn't call them out. But. And Jerry's down the other side smiling because he's waiting to see how this goes. Um, actually, uh, this might surprise you. Um, I've, I've actually, because we've been doing this 
a long time. I think you uh, called me kind of a sour yesterday. One of you called me sour. I'm really not. I just love this space so much um, that where I'm going is a lot of the investors get in and, and we think kind of due diligence is this thing and we have to do due diligence and we're looking for this deck. And I have to tell you, I think it's all bullshit. I actually have started to come to an analogy, which is uh, you and I are going to get into a life raft together and we're going to manage food and water and every single day we're going to do something different than what you told me in your pitch deck. And so I have to figure out if you're the kind of person I want to hang around with for 7 to 10 to 12 to 14 years um, while we go through six or seven iterations and fail four times and have great days together. And I've just gotten to the place, I just want to hang out with people that are kind of cool and figure out if we can, and I'm just going to say it, just figure out shit together. Because like every, like today's a snapshot on today and it's not going to be the same company in 12 months. And I, I'm finding due diligence is kind of a waste. I'm almost setting the rest of the panel up for that, for somebody to fight with me. <laughs> I, w I would love to fight with you, but not on that. <laughs> I, I kind of agree with you, actually. Um, we're, we, uh, we focus on PEI, so it's a bit of a closed uh, ecosystem. And we, we try to identify opportunities or companies or founders or ideas really early on. So uh, each we, we meet once a week, and we will try to any, any new companies we've heard of, any new founders that may be something coming out of UPEI, School of Engineering, the vet school, whatever it is, it may be a new resident at the startup zone. And we try to get close to them very early on. And it may be a year or two away from being investable. But we want to work with them through that whole process and, and actually become engaged with them and guide them and advise them all along the way. When we get to the point of making an investment, after due diligence, but that's all right, we'll, we'll, uh, then we would describe ourselves as active investors. We work very closely with the companies. We take a seat on the board. Uh, and I think that we like to think that we bring some real value uh, to that relationship. I would agree. There's two things. One of the things that investors look for, because you're right, it's building a relationship. So they're looking for honesty. I mean, mm -hmm. if you're going to spend all that time in a canoe, you want to make sure you're spending it with somebody who's straight up with you. That's far easier to work with than somebody who is trying to impress you but is not being straight up. So that one would be really important because I'm going to put in, if I'm investing my money into you, I need to know who I'm investing in. And you're right, things change. I also need to know, the investors also need to know if you're coachable. If you're in the canoe and I'm telling you to row a certain way or suggesting and you say, no, 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 I'm doing it my way, then you're not open to the mentoring that you are receiving or the advice that you're receiving. So we look for people that are coachable, which is critically important. And the other thing that I would really recommend is understanding that money isn't always the solution. Money isn't going to fix whatever you need or get you to where you want. Sometimes it's just the advice, the support, the networking. So really take that time to make sure that you have the right investor and then work with the investor, partner together to grow your business. Maybe you don't need any money right away, but you will need that, that advice, that support to get you to where you are when you really do need the money and then moving forward. It's all about a relationship. 
Yeah, in a, in a similar vein for us, about 90% of what we look for is the founder and 10% is the idea itself. Uh, I mean, if you look at Amazon wasn't Amazon because Bezos was the first guy to think of a, an online retail company. He was a, a, a brilliant mind when it came to supply chain. And when you look at any companies that really make it big, it's the founders that are the right fit for the company. So for us, as much as we obviously want to love the idea, we need to love the person doing it, and that, that person needs to be uniquely qualified, or people, uh, to, to be launching that business. And in a similar vein to the, the honesty aspect, um, when you're a startup and you might know what the flaws are in your business plan, it can feel very vulnerable to have to admit that to a, to a VC or an investor. But you have to keep in mind they can probably already see it <laughs> as soon as you start pitching it. So if you can be upfront about it and say, hey, listen, here are the three things I know I don't have and I know I need help with, they're going to know that you have a good idea in your business plan versus when you say, you know, our idea is perfect. We know exactly what we need to do. Uh, we're we're going to be a billion-dollar company. It will make the VC or the investor second-guess if you really have a good plan. So don't be afraid to be honest because that's what the investors are here to help with. So I'm going to turn this around a little bit um, because I think when you're – meeting with an investor, having a coffee with an investor, doing a pitch with an investor, you're interviewing them as well. This is a two-way street. And you're going to get into the life raft or the canoe, and they have expectations of you, and they're going to be hard on you, and they're going to get pissed off. But you have to really like your investors. And I know that, I used to hate that when I heard that at conferences, because I was sitting in the audience and I had six weeks of runway left before I'd have to start laying people off. Like, I'd take anybody's money, right? Like, I love the con. Like, dumb money? Give it. Bring it my way. If I can get an ATM, right? But six months later, and you find yourself with somebody who owns a piece of your business that you can't even pick up the phone and talk to because you don't like them, that's much more miserable than, you know, burning through and re-looking at your business plan. So... Don't forget, when you're doing a pitch, listen to the questions they ask, how they ask them. Is this someone I want to get married to? Because that's what it's going to be. So it's two-way street. So running with that, uh, Jerry, would you agree that, it's, that maybe a dating and marriage analogy is appropriate here as, um, as a startup thinks about building a relationship with an angel? No. <laughs> Great. Sorry about that. No, I don't. <laughs> So let me give you my philosophy. First of all, I am also an entrepreneur. I'm a founder, a co-founder. To be fair, I have two other partners. But we don't have any outside money. We're, I'm a total contradiction. I invest in startups, but I don't let anyone invest in my startup. How do you like that? So being a total contradiction, and I've got some friends in the, in the audience I'm going to meet here shortly, I don't expect you to like me. I expect you to respect me. And there's quite a difference. I love my wife. I also respect her. So you can even double dip. But I don't do it on the basis of love or like. It's um, let's make sure we can listen to one another and have a conversation about your business. That's all I ask. So there you go. I'm not looking for a marriage. At my age, it doesn't matter. Um, so, um, the other thing I'd like to comment on, because I'm going to go the other way, and I'm not going to get a chance to talk here for a while, um, is coachability. A lot of people say, I'm looking for an investor, an investee that's coachable. What the heck does that mean? I have never found an entrepreneur, including myself, that's coachable. The whole notion of an entrepreneur is a bit of a contrarian. You're always pushing against the status quo. Mm -hmm. You're never 
following advice, let alone from an investor, for God's sake. But I expect you to follow some basic principles of business that are not mine. Integrity with the money. Integrity with the money. I don't mind if you listen to me. I don't want you to waste or run away with my money. So there you go. That's it. Finish. So maybe we'll, we'll run with that around uh, basic principles. Um, are there any basic principles where, regardless of the money, um, you'll, you'll tap out of a deal? And I'll jump to the middle. Uh, Mary, maybe you can run with us. Our investors typically look for somebody that is passionate about their business, believes in themselves, believes that they can do it, has the fortitude to go through it and follow through, but also, again, you know, I, I may disagree a little, but also is, um, again, is integrity, honesty, and who's for, who comes forward with the information. We Several times we have an investor will come to me and say, Trying getting financial statements out of this company is impossible. What are they trying to hide? And you have to remember, a lot of times companies start in with a certain amount, but they need financial support until they can really are up on their own feet. And so if you don't have that relationship and you don't have that honesty and that openness, they're not going to be putting more money in. They're going to look for ways to get out. And then also, every once in a while, we'll run into an entrepreneur who feels, and no slight against anybody that's here in this room, but feels that they're worth a salary of $150,000 a year, and meanwhile, the investor's putting money in. Investors are not keen on that either. I'll push back on that to get some, uh, a bit of a battle going here. Um, one of my good friends, now this is someone that's more uh, senior in his career, having been in investment banking. They were looking to raise a round, and um, he needed 200000 in salary. So the investors were like, you know, forget it. So he tried uh, with his company. They're building, I, I won't identify him actually, they're building a, an IoT company. They went to the Valley. Um, they, what, the VCs here, the angels here weren't receptive. There was one in particular that was. They ended up raising $5 million U.S. in the Valley, uh, large global tech company, and, uh, and a Canadian, I'd say, super angel. Uh, so sometimes it works. In his case, he was earning 400000 prior, so it was a big pay cut, and he lives quite extravagantly. But the investors seem to like that because it also motivates the team. But I get what you're saying. It shouldn't be a pay raise. Um, you're building something, and really investors like to see skin in the game. And Exactly, because sometimes you don't have all the money to come in. Yes, you have some love money, friends, family, uh, but they want to make sure that you're in there working as well and right. you're not taking that cream, so to speak. Randy, you had some commentary? Yeah, yeah no, I'm, uh, you know you've invested in the right individual or group when they care more about your money than their money. And for those of you who haven't raised money with friends and family yet, that's really ramping up the stress levels, right? Because if you're just racking up your own credit card, that's... You can deal with that in your own world, but when you take a friend's money or your parents' money, that adds stress to your life, right? Because you don't want to disappoint them. You don't want to lose their money. And then if you go and take money from an angel, you're not only going to take their money, but they're going to be much more diligent about asking you about how their money's doing, right? Friends and family, ah, you're a nice, honest person. You know, they might ask you at Thanksgiving once a year. You know, it's really nice when you get into 
venture capital money and institutional money because, you know, that's sort of a black hole and, you know, I don't want to mention any of my prior investors, but, like, you know, if someone's running a $200 million fund and, you know, they lose the million dollars they gave you, that's not as stressful as trying to tell your best friend, your mother, that they're not going to get their $5,000 back. So you know you've invested the right person when they care more about your money than theirs. Is it a mistake to raise money from friends and family? Are angels a better alternative? I, I do want to comment on uh, something, you know, pro tip here. If you're an entrepreneur and you come to my angel group, angels are former entrepreneurs. They have wicked OCD or ADHD, and they're sociopaths too. So they're not listening to you, right? You're pitching, and they're Googling your name. They're Googling you say, oh, we're doing this great big deal with Mercedes-Benz, and they Google the name of your company in this. I mean, you should see the pictures of, like, presenters in handcuffs. This is a true story. I got a million of these. Um, but we're checking everything. And so for me, the deal, uh, Claudio asked, what's a deal killer? Um, you tell me, oh, my best buddy's coming in, or so-and-so fund is coming in, or we got this deal cut with Mercedes in 30 days. I'm going to wait the 30 days. So we just had a deal um, come in. He said, I, I got the full round, totally subscribed. You're the last guy in. And I said, hey, I, I, I'm, I'm out. Like, I've got four other deals we're looking at before October 15th. Can't make it. September last week, I get this email from him saying, hey, I've only got 40% of the round covered, so I got room for you. And he's thinking that's awesome. I'm thinking like... What happened to the 85% of the round you just told me about? So now he's moved from top of the list to this guy is like me. He's a marketing guy. So that's bad, by the way. Um, so, you know, that you, what turns you off a deal is you say you got something you don't. You forget to mention something in your resume that might come up. Or you tell me I can wait 60 days and you're going to get something done. Guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to wait the 60 days instead of writing the check. So. I'm not sure I want to co-invest with you, you know, but... <laughs> no, I, I mean, that absolute honesty and, and frankness, uh, because we're going to find out. We're, we're going to do our research. We're going to listen. And there's two places where everything looks absolutely perfect and flawless. Number one is your pitch deck, and number two is your dating site profile, all right? Both those look absolutely perfect, right? And you don't want to be disappointed in either, right? So we, so we want to understand, we want to understand the flaws, understand where your risks are, all of that sort of thing, because we will ask, we will find out, we will do our due diligence. Uh, due diligence, let's run with that. Uh, what does that mean to each of you? Uh, Randy, you were very negative on the due diligence. You want to be uh, a little bit softer in the relationship. Yeah, so uh, I do, but we still look for six things, right? So there's always going to be something that, you know, if we're doing our homework, we're going to still check your cap table because people have lied to us about who their shareholders are and how much money they've raised. We're actually going to look at your historical financials. Yes, I am giving you the list, by the way. Uh, we are going to look at your historical financials to find out how much you have raised, even if you are a startup. We're going to look at your performance, and we both know those are a lie. Um, and th like those are kind of just standard DD things. I would encourage all of you not to raise money until you actually have a binder put together. Because what ends up happening for you is you have the great pitch deck, 
And then when you get in and start asking for, or an investor starts asking for these things, what happens is then you have to go back to your lawyer to get the cap table done, but your lawyer is slow as you know what, and then that's six weeks, and then your accountant has to, or your bookkeeper, and by the time you've done 12 weeks to get this stuff done, I've looked at 18 other deals, and uh, there's a new bright, shiny penny. So, you know, just having that book of material ready to go where actually the pitch deck is the last thing in the fundraising process, not the first. And the other thing that we look for, and, and when we're doing due diligence, it's rare, but I do find the odd entrepreneur that'll tell me beforehand, these are my weak spots. This is where I'm very good. I'm the mad scientist, and I'm very good at doing all of this, but I know nothing about finances. And, but if you spell that out and then you put together your team and that financing person is a very strong component of your team, we're also going to be checking into that as well to making sure that there is because sometimes we will go to that person and we'll say, okay, we need and have that discussion. But that person isn't of the same understanding about how important that person is to the company. And then that is a huge flaw. It's an opening. I guess the, the quickest way to say it is just don't bullshit us with anything because we will find out when we do the due diligence. So we want to make sure all those pieces are together and we're going to look at that. Would you say that um, angels as opposed to VCs are much more willing to help? I know VC is changing, but angels have traditionally been in the room with the founders. And so I'll give you two examples. One is Peter Thiel with uh, Facebook. He was very much an angel on that deal. And another is Mike Markula with Apple and, and the original Steve Jobs team. So can you speak to the value that angels bring perhaps in helping to round out or build out the team and fill in any gaps? I'm probably a little biased on that, but I do believe that angels are much easier to work with. They provide more mentoring. They're willing to... Um, you know, pull up their pants, if, so to say, you know, and actually, or pull up their shirt sleeves and actually get some work done in the company. Um, and uh, some of our companies who've had the opportunity to grow where they can get VCs have come back and said, I want to stay with the angels. Mm -hmm. Randy may disagree. Actually, I was going to ask Suraj because he said he's the value-added guy. You know, Yeah, exactly. That's exactly right. So uh, honestly, what we'll look for, we'll look for places when we ask the entrepreneur what they need, we'll try to see if those are gaps that we can fill, whether it's through our network or things we can source for them. Um, and in terms of the question of VC versus angel investing, I think what we've seen, especially much more in the United States, is that there's more of a demand in the States for, uh, there's more demand for venture capital deals and there are actual supply of good deals, which is, I think, kind of what turns this kind of cold VC environment where they're just trying to deploy capital as quickly as possible and they're not really worried about the company afterwards because really their money is coming from institutional investors who just want access to that, that uh, source of capital. Uh, angels are different because you're, we're putting money into deals where we can see what this company can become and it's, you have more of a vested interest, I guess, uh, not from a financial point of view, um, in terms of having the company grow. So with us, whenever we, we see a company, we try to be as active as possible, um, but I think it's great that you have companies that, that see that value and, and want to come back because at the end of the day, you don't need to go to VC. There's so many places you can go which will be value. I'd like the examples that, uh, that Cloudy provides. Us. 
Yeah, and I want to go back to due diligence uh, for a little bit because I've lived in due diligence hell for the last 20 years. It seems like I've always been providing binders. Uh, and I think it's a great example, a great piece of advice to put together your binder first and then do your pitch deck. Because the biggest problem you're going to face when raising money is trying to get to a no. Okay? I had the privilege of, as I said yesterday, raising money from Sequoia Capital, the best, the largest venture capital firm on the planet. On that round, we got three term sheets, all from Silicon Valley VCs. We got 45 no's. So the round that, so we had to go through 45 people telling us no before we got Sequoia to say yes. So when you start, we can waste a lot of your time, right? Because we're interested. Oh, can you give me a, some information on your competitors in that space? Oh, I saw that, read this article about a product that's sort of adjacent to yours. Would you ever consider, like, we can, we can bury you and string you along, and not in, intentionally, but you're thinking, oh, I'm close to a deal, I'm close to a deal, and we're just still in that exploratory phase. And you have to sort of realize, is this angel or this potential investor truly serious? Because you could spend a lot of time answering emails, answering questions, and thinking you're getting close to a deal, and they're not even, even in that realm of putting it to their investment committee. So just be very careful about and try to get to know how serious they are early on because you're going to have to talk to a lot of people. You're going to get a lot of no's. This is not a one-and-done yes game by any stretch of the imagination. David, I'm going to try to push back on that. Isn't there also value that the founders can extract from the angels and the VCs that they're pitching? In the sense that, you know, you're building a company, there's certain things you haven't really figured out when you pitch to an angel in the right kind of a way where there's a conversation or a dialogue. There's the opportunity for that professional to, to feed you intelligence, to feed you some market intel, and give you a better idea of where you might be able to go. So maybe, is there a way of balancing those two? Uh, okay, so... <laughs> Uh, no. Um, the, um, if, you're, if you're a passionate entrepreneur and you're an expert in your field and you believe that you have a solution and a product, you're going to sit in front of a lot of investors who are going to give you pieces of advice. Listen to that. Listen to, the, to what they're saying, but don't pivot your business because some investor in some big boardroom who's been successful in the past thinks that you should turn left. Right? Like, if you are passionate and committed, you know, keep going on your path because you are the expert. Hey, investors can give you great advice on how to set up, you know, your cap table, where to seek money, what lawyer to use, and those types of things. But if you try every time you meet with an investor to take their advice and incorporate it into your business plan, you'll be spun into circles. So I, I like the confident entrepreneur who believes in what they're doing. Um, I know there's some debate about that, but I've seen too many investor, too many entrepreneurs get too spun trying to take too many pieces of advice and not sticking to what their core belief, their passion and the solution is. Yeah, Jerry, feel free to pipe in. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, look, uh, due diligence. Uh, if you have a young person who's, let's say, 21 years old, who's never done it before, and this is a new business, what is there to do diligence? Diligence. What's the past tense of diligence? 
diligence. <laughs> okay, so there's not a lot around here, and it gets to be well. One question that's going to be valid though is, are you got any competitors? And it's the one that most startups have a problem with, because they think, for a variety of reasons, that their product or service is unique, and it may be unique. It may may be colored differently, but uh, it may be priced differently. But rarely is it unique. And that's a telltale due diligence question. So I'm warning everyone out there. Know your competitors and don't try to pull the wool over the eyes of your angel investors. If you don't know your competitors, you're not ready for any money. Disagree with that. I'm going to interject for, for just one minute. Let me just interject. Uh, so founders in the room, can you put your hands up? Okay, so we want this to be interactive. Those of you that put up your hands, um, I'd like you to formulate a 30-second pitch as to what you're working on, and I'll give you some time to prepare, and then maybe you could give us an idea as to what you're doing, and then maybe we can see if we can bridge a connection here. It's always fun to fight with Jerry, but I can't on that one. How's that? He, he's, I, I totally agree. We see people who think technology is going to be awesome, but you can solve the problem without technology. So they tell us they have no competitors. Like I have a, a medical device. I'm a chair of a company, and the device stops bleeding in three seconds, which is pretty cool. And we raised $11 million to put into this device, and nurses still use this thing called a tourniquet. Right? Like, that's, that's a com competitor. Like you just, uh, so I agree with Jerry. I was going to fight with David a little bit. Sorry. Um, <laughs> I thought this was the best advice I got early on. I'm not, I, have a, uh, I have an advanced high school degree in political science and English literature. I have no skills in finance. I mean that. I, I have no skills in finance. So why am I here? Pattern recognition has saved my life. That's the only thing you learn in art school is that everything goes down to patterns. And if you can figure out the pattern quicker, you'll stay alive and get a job. That's for all of you who are getting arts degrees. You're taught this in Lean Startup, is go talk to 50 customers and figure out what your customers want you to sell them as opposed to what you want to sell them. And I think the same thing is investing. The best advice I got came from a VC in Ventures West. They're no longer around. But he said, you're not going to raise a nickel until you've done your fifth investor pitch. And I thought, oh, that's pretty cool. And the reason was that you start to see the pattern recognition. A good pitch, if you get to that core, is going to get the, five, the same five questions. Or if you get the same five reasons your, your deal's going to suck, somebody else might know something you don't. So I'm a big fan of um, telling startups, if, this, if PEI, if Alex, this guy right here, he's your huckleberry, he's the, he's the gold standard in PEI, or where are you going to get the money? Do you go talk to Alex first? Just say no, okay? So where do you go? Saskatoon. Go F it up somewhere where you're not going to get the money, you don't care if you get the money, and find out the five places, the five things you need to do, so that when you go to Alex, right? How am I doing? <laughs> Founders, does anyone have uh, want to kick off maybe a 30-second pitch so we get to know you? Jerry, what types of investments stand out as your big successes or what 
what you like to where you like to put your money? I put my money in software, and occasionally I make a big, big mistake. Just occasionally. Um, so that's where I invest software, and often companies have more than just software. Like Amazon, I call it a software company, but they call themselves an e-retailer. But you know, they're they're software running their warehousing and their processes inside out. So sometimes there's a debate about. So, um, Kat, do you have any software? Thank God. <laughs> yeah, I, I asked you that yesterday. I know the answer. So what I was interested in, in her pitch, and, and I'm going to be talking to them later. That's not a secret. Um, I've heard from her twice, but her co-founder, Rachel, I haven't heard from yet. And that's what I'm going to be checking on in the next due diligence session. Because it's two to tango or three to tango. Mm. The co is as important as the number one in many cases, right? We often forget the co's. I'm not going to forget you, Rachel. Founders, and another brave pitch, maybe 30 seconds right here. So consumers are asking companies to tell them the source of the stuff that they put into their products. And these companies are telling them they have no idea um, how uh, to know that source. And, you know, we say to them, well, when we log into Facebook, you can tell us the color of your underwear, but yet you haven't put in the investment to find out what's in your back end in the, in the supply chain. So what we do, uh, we create a, a SaaS product for responsible sourcing to ensure that companies can tell. And there's so much regulator pressure right now and consumer pressure uh, for the companies to know the source of those materials that we believe that um, we're in a we have a good timing to get into that space. And the other thing is that we are blockchain-based, so that um, when they go into deep into their supply chains, into uh, countries where there's a lot of fraud, we can help in that respect. Man, are you in a great industry. We, are, uh, we sell thermostats. Starting next week, our thermostats that are sold in the United States of America are going to have a warning label on them that they might can't cause cancer. Because California has put in a regulation that there is a certain silicon that's used in chips that we use in our uh, thermostat. And it, it's trace amounts, but we have to put the warning label on our packaging. And we're now, along with a lot of other industries, Starbucks will start having to put on their coffee cups that their coffee may cause cancer because of you're uncertain about what exactly all of the chemicals and everything that goes into your product. So what you're doing is, is a massive business problem right now in industry. So. Another founder in the room? Uh, I'm Nick Dowling. I'm with Potential Motors. And we do simplified electric vehicle conversions. We take your car and we convert it to electric. So we've talked to so many people and it was through all these conversations that we realized that our first customers are fleet vehicles in North America. And it was through our, uh, our experience in the automotive industry that we realized that this is an industry that's already converting to electric but is looking to accelerate their conversion rate. So we are looking for beta testers to test our product in order for everyone to be part of the electric vehicle revolution. 
Thank you. Those were three really great pitches. Um, you know, to, uh, to a point that was made earlier, <clears throat> excuse me, one thing that we, that we look for and that we actually measure in our kind of our proprietary analysis when we look at startups is the difference they're making in society and how much they're doing outside of just the financials. Um, and it's really great that all three of you had that kind of, for, I mean, for us, that kind of piqued my interest because it was really integral to your business plan. Um, often I've been asked before, you know, how do you weigh the difference they're making in society versus their performance and how the company's going to do financially and what have you. Um, and usually what we say to that is that, honestly, we actually weigh the, the value add aspects more because we can teach a founder how to make better performance. We can teach them how to ramp up their sales and things like that. You can't teach a founder passion. You can't teach them how to care about things other than just having a, a billion-dollar exit. Um, so I love that all three of you had, had that, you know, as part of your business plan. And to a similar point, I would encourage you to find founders that... that have that importance also because it'll help you align your incentives as you grow the company versus having to make a decision you might not want to make. So for the rest of you in the room, so it's not just startups and, and investors, and also for the startups in the room, we, um, we actually do a ba it's thing called Basecamp, and it's two and a half days. This is not a shameless plug. Don't worry. And no, I'm not selling anything. I'm just saying we do a two and a half day thing for our entrepreneurs to understand the language before they come to our angel group. And we don't work on their pitch deck. We work on their cap tables and whether they should take debt and equity and some of these things. And one of the first things we do at Basecamp is this exercise I want all of you to participate in for the next 15 minutes. You've heard four pitches so far. If you were an investor, which one of those are the most interesting to you? Why? What would motivate you to write a check? Because what we found was that entrepreneurs don't understand that we're actually like real people. Well, they know Jerry's a real person because he's one of them. He keeps saying he's an entrepreneur, not an investor. Guess what the rest of us were? Now, the day I sold my company, did I change? Did I become different? My family treated me differently, but the one person who never taught me or treated me differently was my grandmother. And we want to talk about love and respect. You think about your grandmother in your head when you're thinking about investing, right? You don't change your values. You don't change your moral code. But there's going to be four things that drive you, five things, six things, one thing that drive you to be an investor. So as you're listening to pitches, think about which one you like and why. And then as a founder, look at your own business and say, based on what I would be if I was an investor, would I invest in my own deal? So there's a good exercise. So you've heard four so far. Write down for yourself why or why not in those investing. Quickly in the two that I just heard, um, enterprise software. Um, talk to Jerry, not me. Uh, enterprise software makes me twitch. Um, there's lots of it. It costs lots of money. And your customers suck. It takes forever to get your customers to give you a check. There's only a couple other industries that take longer to get a check to the founder. Um, automotive might be one of them. So uh, congratulations to both of you. You hit my nerve. And if you could both, in your pitch, tell me how you're overcoming the fact that your customers actually don't want to give you a check, um, that would really help. My two biggest success stories uh, is selling enterprise software, so I completely disagree. It, it takes a long time, but when you get a customer... Those checks are nice, and they're big, and they're repeatable. You're solving problems. I love, love enterprise software. Yeah, me too. 
30 seconds. Hello, my name is Joel Muse. I'm the CEO of a company called Tranquility Online. And today, one out of five people struggle with generalized anxiety. That's over 100 million people in North America alone. And the problem is getting help. Today, getting help can take six, 12, or even 18 months, or cost over $2,000 to see a psychologist in the private industry. We've created an online platform that, makes, that uses the gold standard that makes getting help affordable, timely, stigma-free, personal, and accessible. And it comes with a, your very own coach. And uh, our first B2B customer will be commencing in 11 days from now. Thank you. So Emma Fugate from Onset Communication. Um, I had a question about um, where has been the most fruitful place for you to find startups to invest in? Like, where do you look primarily? <laughs> um, our deal pools actually come from a great many different places, uh, from conferences, incubators, uh, some of it organic as well. Um, I think that I can't say there's any single source that has been uh, more fruitful in terms of companies we've invested in. Um, we have actually liked investing in companies that have come out of certain incubators. Um, I'm based out of Toronto, so the ones that are in Toronto. Um, one specifically is called the Ryerson DMZ, just because we found that some of the common issues founders have in terms of having a diligence binder before a, slide, before a pitch deck and different things like that um, have already been done. So it just it gets, a, it gets the business to a point where they've done, I call it kind of the admin work already, so you can focus on the core of the business, trying to see if it can be scaled, instead of having to kind of kill time with the, the small hygiene things. We also get a number of our deals from the innovation centers, but we also get them from banks, accounting firms. Uh, the BDC is another one because sometimes banks prefer more than just one in the game, and so we get a fair amount from them, and yes, we also get them organically, but at times we also get from the accountants who have had clients for years and now the client wants to retire and is looking to sell their business and yes they may have an employee or two that's interested but they also need to get their money out because that's their retirement so we find that sector growing as as well and we get a lot from our networks and from our investors they're out there they're entrepreneurs they're in the marketplace and they will come to us, have you heard about uh, so-and-so is doing something really interesting? So we get it from our network and our investors. I'm going to go a slightly different direction. Um, anybody in this room who's never heard of Jerry Pond, put up your hand before this oh, event. Please. Okay. What's wrong with you? No, exactly. exactly. <laughs> so as an entrepreneur you already have a list of the top investors in your region you want to go talk to. Uh, my job is to actually make sure you've heard of me. Because right now, I probably get what I'll call B-plus deal flow. Because Jerry's seeing the A-plus, because everybody knows he's the guy. And this is respect, sir. I, I mean, that this, every, every community has a mafia, right? Toronto's got one. The Atlantic Canada's got one. Lord knows we got them in Calgary. And the Valley really is bad. The Valley's broken into six regions of mafias, right? Like Peter Thiel, he only hangs out with his people. My point is this. If your deal is so smoking hot that you're an A-plus deal, you already know who to go talk to. And if your deal isn't smoking hot, you're going to come talk to me. And whether I like it or not, I'm a B-plus investor. And I mean that. If then, if you have to pay to pitch, 
you've headed down to B, B minus, right? My job on my side is to move from being a B investor to an A plus investor, so I get the hot deals. So we've made comments about being respect, integrity. You all talk to each other about us. Uh, we all talk about you. So both sides, where do I get my deal flow from? I'm fighting tooth and nail to get A plus deal flow. But right now, if it's coming from some of the networks we're talking about, it's B plusers talking to B plus. I got to get in the frickin' mafia, okay? I do. I had skip the dishes. I was the first investor in skip the dishes. And Harley Finkelstein and the guys at Shopify said, hey, don't worry, son, I've got this deal. By the way, we don't know you, so you're out. Jerry so we, is the... We have the fight on our side to get into A-plus deal flow. So be A-plus, and then you won't be asking that question. So you invested in an axe murderer, and you want... And you want to get into the mafia. <laughs> we're, def we're definitely going to co-invest. I don't know about the rest of you in the room, but I want that guy on my, on my investment team. We're going to get the microphone over to Jerry to help us close this off. So, Jerry, as the godfather of the Atlantic Canada Mafia, do you have any advice for the founders in the room? Yeah. I, well, look, there's, there's the mafia, which obviously some of us fit into. Uh, but my answer would be, and I, this is, I've never thought of this before, although I, well, I have thought of it before. I would go to, well, I call it the GG place, Google and golf clubs. Yeah. And I mean the place, the golf club, not a club, right? You know what I'm saying? That was a joke. <laughs> the, the place where golfers hang out, the golf club, not a club. So... A lot of people with money play golf. Don't ask me why, because I hate golf. I don't play it. And then, so you can find me on Google. And it works every friggin' time. If you're an A-plus deal. And so, no, 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 to find angels. Oh, 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 I'm sorry. Because they're so obvious. They like to advertise a lot. And when a founder reaches out to you, Jerry, what, what catches your attention? Well, um, well, the pitch, right? So what do they do? They shoot you an email, they send you a LinkedIn? Oh, yeah, I answer all my emails. Okay. And, you know, they usually send something through the wire. <laughs> and we start talking. Uh, you know, decks are decks and all that. You know, What do you got? Give me your CV. Tell me the truth every time I say that, right? Uh, it's, it's just a conversation. It's nothing really spectacular. Uh, I get quite a few of these, spontaneously, if you will. Uh, no hate mail yet, but uh, it's coming, I'm sure, after this guy, right? He keeps destroying my reputation. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, it's a straightforward conversation between two respectful people. And one thing about doing business in Atlantic Canada, which includes Newfoundland uh, Labrador, um, is that there's a hell of a lot of respect still left in Atlantic Canadians. It's such a jewel of an opportunity to do business here. And I really don't have to go anywhere else, including oil land, to, uh, to find opportunities. And with that, we're going to close off. Thank you to our panelists, and thank you to the founders in the room for making your pitches.